Hello and welcome to only the second ever episode of God in Film, the podcast where a Christian and an atheist dive into the best that cinema has to offer and see if we can find any elements that have any parallels with the gospel or any other Bible stories. I'm freelance filmmaker and tiddlywinks enthusiast Giles Goff. And I'm photographer and professional northerner Phil Coleman. And during this period of quarantine we'll be trying to stave off the existential angst by sticking our film geek fedoras on to analyse the <laughs> faith parallels in Indiana Jones. He's just put on his own fedora, mm-hmm. which is looking very much like an Indiana Jones-style hat, it, which is so appropriate. It, so felt, appropriate. it felt appropriate. It, yeah, it, so it looks appropriate. Doing, doing visual gla- gags for an audio medium. So, so far, we're doing really well. Today, we'll be analysing any faith parallels in Indiana Jones franchise, as suggested by the lovely Claire Goff. We'll be looking at Lot's Wife, Arthurian legend and the Apostle Peter getting out that boat when it was a bit choppy and how it all relates to everyone's favourite archaeology professor with a bullwhip. Phil, do you have a preference? I always really, really enjoyed Raiders of the Lost Ark. I just remember that scene at the end. Spoilers if you haven't seen it since 1981. The bit where they open the Ark of the Covenant and that guy's face just melts right off and you're just like... Whoa! Yeah. This was fairly tame up until this point, and then then they're just melting faces left, right, and centre. The face melting comes right out of nowhere. I find that quite scary. That scene because whatever effects they're using are very similar to the effects in the opening scene of Ghostbusters, where the the librarian sort of turns into this massive shrieking ghost, and that absolutely traumatised me as a child. Similarly, that scared the crap out of me as well, (laughs) so it was quite something. And and you look back at it now, and the effects aren't the same Mm, as what you get nowadays, but it's still scary. For me, I, I think probably it has to be The Last Crusade. It's the place where I learned that God has a name. That name was Jehovah, and in the Latin alphabet, Jehovah starts with an I. I Hover, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sponsored yeah, yeah, by yeah. Apple. <laughs> um, Phil, do you want to tell us about Indiana Jones? Absolutely. Indiana Jones is an American media franchise based on the adventures of Dr. Henry Walton, Indiana Jones Jr., a fictional professor of archaeology that began in 1981 with the film Raiders of the Lost Ark. The franchise expanded to television in 1992 with the release of The Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, a series featuring adventures the character had as a child when he travelled around the world with his dad. The film franchise, worldwide, has made nearly $2 billion at the box office, and as of the release of and reception of Kingdom of the Crystal Skull in 2008, has received seven Academy Awards, all for technical achievements, out of a total of 14 nominations. Outside of the film, the franchise has also expanded into novelizations, with a total of 21 novels and 51 children's novels, 35 of which are based on the young Indiana Jones. It has also spawned 20 video games, five theme park attractions, numerous toy lines such as Kenner, Hasbro and Lego, and it even has its own pinball machine. Commercially, it's an expansive and successful franchise, and now a household name in terms of entertainment. I've got some fun facts in terms of production. Would you like to hear some? Okay, look, I cannot wait. uh, These are all from Raiders of the Lost Ark. So most of the body blow sounds were created by hitting a pile of leather jackets with a baseball bat. Why would you do that? Why, like, what have the leather jackets ever done to you? For those of you who don't know, Giles basically has, like, a kinship with jackets. Um, I like to think I'm the patron saint of leather jackets. <laughs> it's basically, yeah. If you do end up hurting leather jackets, he'll probably try and hurt you. So yeah. that's not that's not true. <laughs> we can cut that bit out. <laughs> it's a little bit. Um, 
During filming in Tunisia, nearly everyone in the cast and crew got sick, except for director Steven Spielberg. It is thought that he avoided illness by eating the only food he brought with him, which is a lot of cans of SpaghettiOs. Spielberg's often been accused of having a bit of a Peter Pan complex that he never grows up. And I liked the idea that in this particular case, that Peter Pan complex and the the associated food habits stop him from getting diarrhoea, you know? (laughs) Um, Steven Spielberg and Melissa Matheson wrote a script during shooting breaks on location for this film. Matheson was there to visit her husband, Harrison Ford, and Spielberg dictated to her a story idea that he had. That script was eventually called E.T., The Extraterrestrial. Damn it. Damn, I Stephen, why'd you I wish, I, wish I came up with just, you know, world-renowned sci-fi films. Have a word with yourself, please. Just, just on You're making break, the rest you know, of us yeah. look bad. Yeah, we are probably, full disclosure, we are probably going to do E.T. at some point in the future. Yes. Know? I love that film. Really? Um, this also, Razor Lost Art, was Alfred Molina's first credited screen role. Um, his first scene on his first day of filming was involved being covered in tarantulas. Yeah, yeah no, that's yeah. my Wednesday. Yeah, most uh, days when I'm filming a short film, I like to cover people in tarantulas, whether the script demands it or not. I mean, once they've done that, then they're going to be less stroppy about the things you actually need for the film. So whenever possible, cover your actors in tarantulas. It really they, helps. They'll never complain about that T-shirt that you want them they to wear again. never you know? complain. Uh, and Moving I've got on. from the Last Crusade as well. Harrison Ford nominated River Phoenix to play him as a teenager. However, Phoenix didn't base his portrayal on the Indiana Jones character. He based it on Harrison Ford himself. So he observed observed Ford out of character uh, before acting his part. Sean Connery and Harrison Ford wore no trousers during the shooting of the entire Zeppelin sequence, mainly because it was filmed in a very hot studio and Connery did not want to sweat too much. (laughs) Wonderful. I can just imagine Sean Connery in the Zeppelin just going like, this is too damn hot. (laughs) Just what, what a guy. Yeah, there's, yeah. For me, there's always two Sean Connerys. There's like younger Sean Connery in Bond, and then there's older yeah. Sean Connery in things like Indiana Jones. So. Exactly. It's like there's no middle ground. You go from like being he's... from James Bond, and then you click your fingers, and then you're Indy's dad. <clears throat> he's suddenly old. In the beginning of the movie, when Professor Henry Indiana Jones Jr. is teaching his class, he says, If it's truth you're interested in, Dr. Tyree's philosophy class is right down the hall. This is a reference to Ford's own professor because he was a philosophy major, Dr. William E. Tyree. Okay. When shooting in Venice, they were allowed to have complete control of the Grand Canal from 7am to 1pm for just one day only. They had six hours to nice. not screw it up. <laughs> Can you imagine if we had that restriction on us when you know we're what? making films? I think films. we'd be fine. You know, Actually, like... you know what? Six hours is quite generous. Well, first of all, crucially, they well, had it's... permission to do it. You and I, we would just sneak in there and just film things in between tourists passing by, you know? That so is true, actually, yeah. I reckon I reckon we'd be okay. I think we'd do all right, yeah. And also, for me, I, I don't know what it is about this fact, but I just think it's interesting. Mm-hmm. The four horses used in the final scenes outside the temple were loaned to the movie personally by King Hussein of Jordan. <laughs> Yeah, as, I mean, as you do, you know. Once you've made Jaws, you'd be amazed what you can get away with, you know. I mean, when Big Spielberg comes up and says, I'm making a film, yo, you're just giving your horses. <laughs> that is the rule. The last I heard. <laughs> uh, uh, I was learning about um, Temple of Doom, which, to be honest, we're not going to talk about that much. The reason is, is it's not aged super well. Um, did you know that it's a prequel? Mm-hmm. Yes, I did. Did you know the reason why? No. This is what we would call beautiful George Lucas logic. Okay. okay. They made it a prequel because George Lucas didn't want Indiana Jones to have to face Nazis as the bad guys again. Huh. Yeah. 
Yeah. That's the... I... But, I, 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 I... But there's other people in the world other yes, than the Nazis. Yes, there are other people in the world other than like, Nazis. Like, it didn't, it didn't yes. have to face them again. There was no, no matter what year it is. I know, I know. It's... Oh, God bless you, George. We we love you. We love you very much. No matter what anyone says, we think you're great. I think what we found with Temple of Doom is don't try and make a feature film whilst you're having a messy divorce because that's what George Lucas was doing. And also Spielberg was breaking up with his girlfriend at the time. That said, he did yeah. end up marrying the leading lady. So he did all right out of it. I, I feel like he did come out on top in the end. Yeah. You know, yeah, situation at least. So, my friend Irfan did point out that Temple of Doom was his favourite because of Short Round, and that you've got <laughs> some representation of an Asian person doing something other than a stereotypical Asian thing. And also, I think we all liked the idea of a ten-year-old driving a car when we were ten. I think we could all get on board with that idea. Absolutely. I mean, I thought Short Round was quite a great character, and he's he been part fan. of the popular culture. Like, you, you see it in things like Family Guy. It's always got short round in it. He's obviously stood the test of time. Thanks for those, Phil. They were absolutely ace. Now, no on problem. to this week's guest. I looked high and low, but I couldn't find an Indiana Jones specialist. But what I did find was a man that the BBC described as a renowned expert in Arthurian literature. Now, huh. Phil, I know when you hear the phrase banger's finest, your mind immediately goes to me. Naturally. naturally. And who can blame you? But no. for me and many others, Professor Peter... Peter Field was the best that Bangor University had to offer. Ooh. He taught there for 40 years and he is the quintessential professor. Full disclosure, Amazing. he didn't have a lot to say about Indiana Jones, but he had tons to say about the Holy Grail, which is the central MacGuffin of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Yes. Let's hear what he has to say. I'm Peter Field and I'm an emeritus professor at Bangor University in North Wales. Uh, and I've uh, taken an interest in things to do with King Arthur and the Grail uh, for my whole working life. Thank you, Professor. I've got a few questions. Firstly, what exactly is the Holy Grail? Uh, the answer is, we don't really know. <laughs> if you mean, what was it originally, which is what most people mean. We can tell you what it was uh, on its first appearance. Uh, mm -hmm. in about 1180 in northern France. And it changed to something else about 20 years later, which is more like what you're going to find in modern films. For instance, uh, Indiana Jones, where the Grail is the centerpiece of, of the third film in the series. But what it was in its origins, we have to guess at from all sorts of little clues. And it's a lot of fun, mm -hmm. but it's awfully difficult to be certain. On its first appearance, in a poem by a writer called Chrétien de Troyes, uh, who was writing in northern France in 1180 or so, uh, he says it is a grail, as mm. though there were possibly quite a few of them. And other documents, first that a grail was a large shallow bowl uh, designed to contain something like fish stew. And in the second place, we know that the word was very rare, so it's very probable that when Cretan's first audience wasn't certain what it meant, and that made it possible for later audiences to reinvent it because it was just that strange thing called the Grail. So later writers are effectively taking advantage of the ambiguity. They may not have known that it was an ambiguity. They may just have been faced with a baffling word, 
and have made up what they thought was most appropriate. And since it was presented as an important, strange object in a castle where all sorts of magical-sounding things were going on, they reinvented it as a supernatural thing Mm -hmm. uh, in the supernatural terms that people were most used to uh, about 1200. And the thing they were most used to as being supernatural was things connected with the the Catholic Mass. And particularly, if you were looking for an object, the chalice uh, in which the wine is contained uh, at a Catholic Mass, then and now. I see. So why do you think this particular artefact has had such an interest for writers? The answer is because it's mysterious. And it's mysterious partly because uh, it seems likely that people didn't know what the word really meant. They didn't know that it was originally a bowl for containing fish stew. Um, (laughs) And also it was mysterious because it was surrounded by these mysterious objects. And the mysterious objects seem to be the leftovers from... Uh, a pagan religion that everybody had stopped believing in six or seven hundred years before, mm-hmm. but they were still telling the stories without really realizing that they were pagan stories. They were just wonderful stories full of amazing things, and they m- must have made the time pass a lot more easily in all those long winter evenings when there was no television. Fantastic. Do you have a a favourite depiction of the Holy Grail in literature? There is one medieval story uh, that is the most coherent and the most complicated. It presents the Holy Grail not as a fishbowl, but as a chalice uh, that contains the blood of Christ. Mm -hmm. And that story is is Sir Thomas Mallory's Mort Data, Mm -hmm. which is the the best known and most successful and most influential story about King Arthur. And Mallory makes the supreme quest of King Arthur's knights the one to find the Holy Grail. And when they find it, the knights who are successful either go to heaven or die or or have their lives permanently transformed. Mm. Professor, thank you very much. That was really appreciated. And You're very welcome. Thank you so much. It is always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Giles. That was Professor Field. What a fascinating man. I've got to say, I really like mm-hmm. his voice. Yeah. <laughs> He's got such yeah, a soothing yeah. voice. What was it he was talking about now about the, the medieval legend, by the end of it, people being transformed and that kind of thing. You sort of see that. Albeit they get transformed into a pile of goo. It's still a transformation all the same, so I suppose there was some kind of parallel there. But um, just the fact that a lot of the sort of legends about the Holy Grail mostly are for entertainment. Like, yeah, I kind of quite like that. It's funny, there's the reference to a grail, which we find out would, was basically a fishbowl. Or a bowl for having fish stew in, yeah. And <laughs> because it was such an unusual word, such an ambiguous word, other writers take it on. So it's like they're stuck in one of those big games of you write something, then the next person writes something else, and so on and so on for it's 500 like, hey, years. Hey, how, how can we make this sound even more spectacular? Let's add the word holy in front of it. Yeah. Big thanks to Professor Field for being on, and thanks to Lizzie Boothroyd for helping set that up. Now, on to yes. finding the faith in the film. 
So this section will have to start with a confession. Unlike okay. many of the films we're going to be looking at, these films have very little thematic connection with anything I can find in the Bible. It's true that Indiana starts out as a man simply looking for fortune and glory and becomes a man who can sacrifice that ultimate fortune in order to be reconciled with his father. But you can make biblical parallels there if you want. But to be honest, that feels so general and so broad that to me, they start to lose all meaning. What I'm more interested in these films is the way they use the iconography from the Bible or very basic principles and manage to integrate them into, let's be honest, some pretty awesome films. They've not always aged <laughs> particularly well, but we're happy to forgive them for their faults, except for Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, obviously. Ugh. Yeah, we just pretend it doesn't happen. That's the easiest way to, what, to go What didn't it. happen? There you go. Now, the fun thing I, I realised is that Lucas and Spielberg sort of raid the Bible for story treasures like thieves raiding an ancient temple. They grab the shiny stuff and then take it away and put it in a completely different context. So if I start with looking at, at the Ark of the Covenant, Spielberg and Lucas take the Ark of the Covenant and turn it into the MacGuffin of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Phil, how would you explain a MacGuffin? A MacGuffin would be a plot device, yeah, um, yeah. usually used to progress the story. So. Bang on, okay. So it's a term invented by Alfred Hitchcock, and it just means a plot device that helps to propel the narrative. So early during Raiders, there's a line about how when the Israelites carried the Ark, they were never defeated. And with one really quick line, that just explains why the Nazis want it but even if we uh, yeah. take just the slightest poking at that the reasoning falls apart really quickly so in the old testament the israelites were never defeated when they had god on their side the ark right. itself is just kind of there it's at least in my opinion it's inconsequential it's like saying well whenever we got in giles's car it always took us places it's so, yes it's sort of like well yeah but giles you know, is the key ingredient at that point you know that's the one it, thing you're missing it, there i think the thing it shows us at least from a film filmmaking perspective is that if you explain something quick enough and you have enough running around <laughs> and the script is witty enough and the character is charismatic enough, we're going to forgive a lot of things. Yeah. Know? So in terms of the big reveal when they open the Ark and those angels and demons come out, from what I can tell, there is no basis in theology for that at all. The closest thing I could find is in Exodus 33:20 when God says to Moses, uh, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. Now, no one explicitly states that your face will start to melt off, but there we go. <laughs> That's the thing. That's the thing, isn't it? Like, mm. I, I just imagined <laughs> you open it up and God's there just kind of like, I've told you, <laughs> right? If you bloody look at me, face going to melt <laughs> off, isn't it? <laughs> I said it in Exodus. <laughs> You know. Because of course God talks with a Warrington accent. <laughs> of course in he fact, does. Of course. I would be I'd be shocked if it was anything else. I mean so does Harrison Ford and so does yeah. Spielberg and everyone yeah. else and who yeah. pressures yeah. it's it is weird that. There's one other thing where where Indy and Marion close their eyes and they're saved from it because they close their eyes. That has a bit of similarities with Lot's wife in Genesis nineteen twenty six. So when God is destroying Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot and his wife are fleeing the city and they're told not to to look back lot's wife looks back and she's turned into a pillar of salt there's some slight similarities there but yeah it's a stretch the fact that they looked at the thing they shouldn't have looked at and it yeah. all went bad you could link that to the story of medusa for example yeah medusa uh, orpheus in the underworld that sort of thing it's a story trope that we see turned up in ancient text quite a bit now the holy grail as we've heard dates back to the 12th century with chrétien de Troyes, and as a result not really that big a deal the holy grail as we understand it was the cup jesus drank out of at the last supper but to be honest, 
Jesus almost certainly used a lot of crockery in his life. There's I mean, no reason. Yeah. There's no reason why that's particularly important. If I remember correctly, he actually went to IKEA and he grabbed a crockery set of grails and he was like, you know, they'll do actually. <laughs> I hope Jesus doesn't go to Ikea because that place is not of the Lord. You walk in and the arrows point you in directions. I'm like, don't tell me what to do, Floor. Anyway, the last thing I want to talk about, and we could talk about loads of stuff on this. The last thing mm-hmm. I want to talk about was the leap of faith. You know, where Indy steps yes, out. Yes, I remember. You know, he's there at this point. It looks like there's no way he can possibly cross it. It looks like he's about to fall to his absolute certain death. And he's repeating leap of faith, leap of faith, leap of faith. And he yes. just takes a moment steps a foot forward and just goes for it. Now, that to me has some fairly obvious parallels with Matthew 14, verse 29, where the apostles are all in this boat. There's a massive storm. They think they're going to die. And then they see Jesus walking towards them on the waves. And he's like, everything is chill. Why don't you come out and join me? And they're all terrified, except for Peter. When it comes to the apostles, Peter's my boy, okay? He's the one I... Yeah, he's the one I'd like to be like the most because he's like, yeah, all right, I'll give it a try. He screws up a ridiculous amount, but I love him for it, you know. But he's because... got spirit, you know. He's got the yeah. he's got the drive, and that's, yeah, and and that's honestly, aspirational. S- yeah, screwing up a ridiculous m- amount, that's kind of my jam. That's kind of what I'm good at, you know? <laughs> it's, the, but that's, like, it's the most human thing you can do. Exactly. And the, the funny thing I think about it is that in this scene, Indiana Jones technically uses more faith than Peter at this point because at least Peter can see Jesus walking on the waves, you know? Yeah, at least well, there's there's that tiny kernel of a possibility that this at, could At this work, point, Indiana, know? he's just looking over and just like, right, there ain't no bridge. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I am yeah. I'm taking a big risk. Isn't yeah. it that he... F- doesn't he throw a load of um, grains he does or on rocks the way or back. on the way back? And that's what I think is really interesting is that when we look at something from with the benefit of hindsight, it's obvious. It's mm. it's obvious why those choices are made. And if we look at like leaps of faith that we make in our, in our own lives, and then when they worked out fine, they seem obvious. They were the obvious choice to do. So for me, it would be things like the decision to to move to Manchester uh, mm. or the or to go into teaching. Those weren't obvious choices at the time. They were scary. But if I didn't do those things, I wouldn't have met the love of my life. And I think that leap of faith is sort of central to the entire thing about Christianity. God doesn't come down and say, "Here I am," and review remove. All, all doubt you've got this this element of doubt it does involve a leap of faith and that's what i found fascinating on a faith level on a personal level just on a, on a human level in general i think that's really interesting and from my perspective as well obviously i'm i'm not a believer but like when you see those kind of things play out on screen it's it's sort of like a testament to the strength of someone's character. It, it can be inspirational in that respect, whether it is God that is giving you the motivation and the strength to do it, or if it's just your inner sort of strength. Yeah. Either way, it doesn't take away from the fact that no matter what your motivation is, it's hard to do, but sometimes exactly. it's the right thing to do, you know? Yeah, it takes a lot of guts to do it. Thank you very much for listening, guys. We've now launched our podcast, The Outside World, and we're starting to get some reviews coming in. Natalie Austin, who is our waffle editor, makes sure that we're not going too far off topic. And she describes us as a great podcast for anyone looking to dig a little deeper into the movies with some genuinely witty commentary. I have no idea which podcast she's listening to. because I... No, this, it's, it must be some other one. But yeah, I tell you yeah, what, yeah. thank you so much, Natalie. Really appreciate that. And my friend Joe described us as full of wonderfully hilarious anecdotes curious film trivia and some thought-provoking cinematic exegesis i've got to say he gets points 
for the word exegesis in there. That's just mwah, beautiful. Yeah, not going <laughs> to lie. Had to look up exegesis in the dictionary again. I, I think I know what it means, but I had to be 100% certain. Yeah, I've, I looked it up. I think it means a critical explanation or interpretation of a text, especially of scripture. So specific. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So thank you guys. Joe, you win a trip in the Jarsmobile. And Nat, you win a personal appearance with me turning up at your house at random intervals for the rest of your life. That sounds like something she already had. It does sound rather like I've given them prizes that they've already got, so I don't have to do anything. Let's skip over that. Curious. (laughs) (laughs) I think we're going to leave it there for today. Thank you very much for listening, guys. We have absolutely enjoyed talking. Well, I mean, I've enjoyed myself. You enjoyed yourself, Phil? I always enjoy myself when I'm talking about films, so (laughs) that's all good with me. We've had a great time. I really hope you have too. The next film we're going to be looking at, or the next series of films, are going to be the Terminator franchise. So if you want to talk about those, please just let us know. If we've missed anything out, leave a review and let us know in the comments and we'll find you on social and have a chat about it there. Thank you very much and we'll see you next week. Thank you guys. God in Film is hosted and created by Giles Goff and Phil Coleman. Mixing by Phil, editing by Giles. Our logo was designed by Julie Walsh and our theme tune was designed by Rick Lee. Fact checking by Christina Stanard Good. Dialogue editing by Natalie Austin. God in Film is a Dask production. Please rate and review, unless it's a one star, in which case just tell Phil through the medium of interpretive dance.